last time that I preached, I began with Sola Scriptura. Today, I'm going to begin with Sole Deo Gloria. That's a Latin phrase. And it was the overarching theme of the Reformation. And the Reformation, that only reclaimed that as the banner which was placed over all creation. And it was that other Latin phrase, Sola Scriptura, that drove the idea, the Word of God. Sole means alone or only, and Deo Gloria means God's glory. And this is the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, God is not bound by time, space, or matter. He created them, as told to us in that verse. In the beginning, that's time. He created the heavens, that's space. And he created the earth, that's matter. He, God, did this all with only a spoken command. And this is the same message given throughout the Bible, all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We must know, we must recognize, understand the God that is told to us by the Bible. He who is the Word of God is outside and above all of his creations. But that's not to imply that he's an unloving or unkind God. All you need to do is look at his creation to see and know that he's a God of order, of beauty, and even of love. And he's sovereign over all of his creation, completely sovereign, which means that there is not one speck of dust in all of the universe that God is not in control of. And there's not one single moment in any of our lives that he is not sovereign over. And the God that is revealed to us in the Bible is a God of love. And you're thinking, God of love? Did you hear what he just did to all creation? Well, let me prove to you that he is a God of love. You see, in order for us to speak of God, to be able to even think of him, we have to use anthropomorphic language. We have to give him human attributes. And we do this because he does this. There's one of those anthropomorphic terms, he. We say that God is a he, that he is a father. And both of those terms have been given to us by this Bible for us to be able to better be able to relate to our creator, to know him. And the reason that we know how to speak about our creator is because in his love, he condescended to give us this book. The Bible, an accurate account of God in his creation. Have you ever really stopped and considered this love letter that you hold in your hand? That one that you have, you just allow to sit on your shelf and collect dust? You see, the Bible isn't given to us 
to explain God. It merely gives us a basic outline of what he is like, as described to us in his attributes. The Bible is given to us to explain the reason that there is something instead of nothing. The reason that there are humans instead of not having humans. And the reason that you, that you specifically were created. Because God is love. But that's not the reason he created you. God did not create simply because he is love. He created out of his love, but not for love. There is one stated reason given to us. For all of us to know. He created for his glory alone. Romans 11.36 tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And the truth of Romans 11.36 is verified by Genesis 1.1. For from him and through him. That's what we're told there. And when we are told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he did this all for his glory. And in his love, because he is love, he created humans. In his image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And he created a perfect environment, created a garden for his image-bearing creation to live in. And he created it in such a manner that his creation could share in his creativeness. So he gave man a job, and then he gave man a helper, and he walked in the cool of the day with his creation, like a father with his son. But don't get confused. He didn't create because he was lonely, or because he was bored, or because he was incomplete. He created all for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 there he speaks about those reason, the reason that those that are his are of his family. He says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and I made. That's a microcosm. And then if you pull back a little bit further, we're told in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then we hear the angels in heaven declaring the truth in Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And again, Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5, answers the why of the flood. Why God destroyed the world in the flood. There, we're told, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But this is not the God that we have been taught. Not the God that is spoken of, that is being spoken of as we speak here in most places that call themselves churches. You see, they have a hard time with the reality of a God that is revealed to us in the Bible. In dealing with the reality that God has no issue with casting created in his image people into an eternity of torment and separation from all other created beings. They say that that's not nice. That's, not, that's unloving. That the God that they served would never do this. Or they'll say, 
there is no such place as hell. Or they say that God doesn't send any there. If somebody goes to hell, they must go to hell over his dead body. They must step over the body of Jesus, the Christ, as he reaches out for them, trying to grab hold of them, grab their arm, grab their leg, something, anything, desperately calling to them, just love me. And if they go to hell, what can we do? I mean, he tried his best. He did all he could do, but he couldn't override their free will. He made that stronger than his love, more sovereign than his grace. But from today's account, we will dispel these bad anti-God and pro-human notions. It's my desire and hope that when we get to the end of our account from today, that it will cause us to shout with the angels in heaven, glory to God alone. Verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon them. God said back in Genesis 6-7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 8, we're told, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God just obliterate all humanity? I mean, instead of destroying all the land-based life along with humans, why didn't he just call for a do-over the moment that Adam sinned? I mean, he could have saved himself a lot of time and a lot of effort. Again, it's only when you don't understand Genesis 1-1, when you don't get the reason that there is anything instead of nothing, you can't answer that question. Because he could have called for a do-over. He could have just started all over. And he could have prevented sin from entering his creation both in heaven and on earth. But he didn't. And he didn't because he desires to be glorified. For his creation to grasp the reality of his majesty. To be able for us and everything in his creation to be able to see the reality that he alone is good. He alone is beautiful. He alone is holy. And that he alone is love. And then for us to glory in the God that created us. And all of these demonstrations could only happen by allowing sin to enter into his perfect created realm. And we are told that Noah was righteous before God in verse 1 of this chapter. And before that, we are told that the reason that God is going to bring judgment on the earth, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, there we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the, their way on the earth. And then the command by God to build an ark was given a hundred years earlier to Noah. 
And we are told that in all that God commanded of Noah, he obeyed. So for over 100 years, Noah stood on the word of God as the purpose for his life. Do you understand that Noah didn't know what a flood was? In fact, he probably didn't even know what an ark was. I mean, there had never been any rain. And we're never even told that they lived anywhere close to anything much more than a stream or a river. But Noah had been warned that this ark would preserve him and his family along with all the animals that God would bring to him. And he believed God, so he stood on the word of God and he obeyed God. And the life of Noah is a great picture of that truth that's told to us in Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25, where we read, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see, that doomsday clock on the wall, it couldn't be stopped or slowed down because Noah got behind schedule. God was not going to delay his judgment because Noah decided not to work hard, decided that since he had no master watching over him, I can work at a leisurely pace. I mean, what's the hurry after all? And Peter, in his epistles, particularly liked to use Noah as an illustration. He did so in both of his epistles. In the first, he said that God was patiently waiting to destroy the earth for Noah to complete his given task. And the picture given us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, is one of God watching, looking with approval at the work of the ark, as those around Noah continued in to live in their selfish, sin-filled, self-centered lives of debauchery. And in his second epistle, Peter said of Noah that he was a herald of righteousness, verse 5 of the second chapter. Now, a herald of righteousness is a preacher, a fire and brimstone proclaimer of truth. So are we to actually believe that Noah was actually preaching to any that would hear him? I would say that he was. I would say that anyone that questioned him as to why he was building this ark, why he was wasting all of his time and all of these resources on this huge eyesore, to those he proclaimed the reality of the not yet seen, that God was going to destroy all life and preserve him and his family in this ark. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade, Noah proclaimed the same sermon. Repent. The end is near. And the end never seemed to get any nearer. The naysayers, they scoffed. The religious, they remained complacent. But then Noah got the roof done. And the animals started showing up. Verses 11 through 16. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
And on the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to his kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to his kind. Could have left out the cockroaches. And every bird according to his kind, and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Do you realize that the, the flood narrative, the flood is of such importance in the gospel narrative that's found in the book of Genesis that the account of the flood is told to us three times in two chapters? The first time the flood is told to us in future tense, verses 17 through 21 of chapter 6. And then the flood narrative is told to us once again in the future tense, in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, which is why verse 4 tells us, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And then the third time that the flood narrative is given to us is here in verses 11 through 16. And here... God is very specific about when that flood occurred. In chapter 6, God had said that the days of man would be no more than 120 years, thereby starting the big doomsday clock that he had hung on the wall long before he said, let there be light. And on that appointed specific day, God had Noah and his family go into into the ark along with all the animals, and then he shut them in. He closed the door from the outside. See, God is being very careful in, telling of, in the telling of this account, making sure that we understand that he is the primary actor in all that's about to transpire. Look at verse 4 again. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and everything that I have made I will blot out from the face of the earth. Well, he may have had man and his son build an ark, but they used his raw materials to build it. They used his knowledge and his skills to build it. And he was the one who brought the animals, who caused the food to grow that would sustain them. And he was the one that sealed them in. And then he was the one who caused the fountains of the deep to burst forth with a mighty rush and at the same time brought rain from heaven. Saints, I always want to warn you about humanizing the Bible, about making it about you, about seeing yourself as David. But at the same time, I want to warn you about dehumanizing the Bible as well. Because Noah was a real person. He was just like you and me. He wasn't a super saint, because there are no such things. There are only saints and ain'ts. And Noah could not have known in advance what was about to take place. What God meant when he said that he was going to bring a flood on the land and wipe out every living creature. He couldn't have known if the ark would even hold together or even what it was going to do. He had to trust and in fear obey. But don't think that he wasn't like you and me that he didn't doubt, that he didn't wonder if maybe he really might not have heard the voice of God tell him to build this ark. 
Maybe it had just been a figment of his imagination. Maybe it had been the pizza they'd eaten the night before. Maybe he was just plain crazy. But don't think that he didn't have to wonder if he was right. But every day, he still got up and he gave his life to the God that created him. And in obedience to this God, he went to work. And he led his family and his wife into this adventure, trusting in the God that he feared more than everything else. Again, in thinking about this account from a human level, we know from the genealogy given to us in chapter 6 that Lamech, Noah's father, Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, they both died in the year of the flood. Think about this. They had been around, they had been alive the entire time that Noah had been at the task of building the ark. They had been around when he preached repentance to those around him. And they had to know that they had not been told to prepare to go into that ark. And there also had to have been those around Noah, probably part of his extended family, who agreed with him, at least in theory. Maybe they came alongside of Noah for a while and helped him in building of the ark. I mean, they liked the thought of this man's ministry. They saw themselves as being on the same page with Noah. All the while, they continued to live with their secret sin, continued to toy with God, oh, willing to sacrifice as Noah did. I mean, they might have been willing to sacrifice some of their time to help Noah build what they thought probably was just a monument to God. But they loved their sin more than they did him, and their lives proved it. compared to the rest of humanity, they were good. They were religious. And maybe even compared to the rest of themselves who called themselves of God, maybe they were really good at being good. And they probably saw themselves inside the ark. They even talked about themselves being in it, told others, I'm in the ark. I'm assured of that. And at the same time, there were also those that said that a loving God would never kill his creation. He loves us much too much. We are much too important to him. Noah was just mistaken. The ark was a monument to God. It was a place for God. And I'm there. Me and God, we've got a special agreement, a special relationship. Do you not understand this has to be reality? And at the same time, don't think of humanity at this time that it just consisted of a handful of cavemen. That when the ark was built, that the earth was sparsely populated. That Noah built the ark in seclusion. That the flood and the warning of the ark weren't widely known. The population of the, of, that wor of the world at that time, we can't know it, but the estimates range from 140 million people to up to 4 billion people alive on the planet at that time. 4 billion is about half of our world's population from today. And so for 100 years, Noah preached repentance to the people around him. Think about this. 
you who are in ministry. For a hundred years he preached repentance. And the fruit of his preaching after a hundred years that was, was that on the day that that doomsday clock counted down to zero, it was Noah and his family who were entered, who were ordered to enter into the ark. And then the Lord shut them in. And then the vast amounts of water, that water that had been created for this day, predestined and stored in the heavens, and the vast waters that had been created and stored under the earth's surface, the surface, they obeyed the command of God and let go. And don't think that the rain was a gentle shower. It was a torrential downpour, and it became it began piling up very quickly, sweeping away everything. And when that happened, again, put yourself in that place. When that happened, there had to have been those who tried to get into the ark, who beat on the sides of the ark, begging those inside, let me in. There had to have been people trying to hang on to the ark, to get on top of the ark, to get into the ark. Moms with little babies clinging to them, crying out to be saved. Think about this. And when we do, our hearts hurt. And this, and this is where our bad theology concerning God comes from. You see, we have empathy on ourselves, empathy for our kind, because we would not want to be treated in this manner. And we think that this is wrong, that cruelty and injustice is wrong. And it is wrong. Cruelty and injustice are wrong. Genocide, ethnic hatred is wrong. So you're asking, what right did God have to do this then? I thought that God was a loving God. What about all those babies? What about the little old ladies? What about the infants? Who is this God to do such a thing? Can you see how easily we overemphasize humanity and de-emphasize God? And you ask yourself, what's wrong in doing that? That. That is the DNA of sin. It is the realization, it is the realization of the sin nature that is within us. Thinking, as the serpent told Eve, that we can be like God, that we are equal to God. But we are not. We are the created and he is the creator. He is the God who was before the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth. He is the God who created man in his image, gave him a helpmate, created a paradise to live in, and then gave him one rule to not go against. Do not eat of the fruit of that tree. And I don't care what the name of that fruit of the tree is or whatever the promise of that tree promised. That's not the issue. The issue was do not eat. And man ate. He rebelled. He killed himself, sold himself into slavery. And no matter how much sacrifice and worship that men did, outside of the intervention of God, their sinful instincts still prevailed. And they were still alienated from him. <clears throat> and they, 
they thought that he did not have a right, that he would never destroy the unjust. They didn't know God. They didn't understand that all, all is for him. And this is why in verse 4 of chapter 6, God says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the earth. It's his rain. It's his time. It's his earth. He made every living thing, and they were all made for his glory. And humanity sinned. The problem isn't with God. It's with us. We don't understand sin. We don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. We understand ourselves very well, which is why we think that we humans are so special. But we do not understand the God that we create instead of not creating. Verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and it bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains and covered them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And it's over. 1,600 years of man having dominion over the earth. Done. Save eight, along with the plants and the animals that were aboard. But why would God do this? Why, why would he go to all the trouble to do this? I mean, he created the entire heavens and earth. Everything that we know, everything that we don't know, he created them all in six days. And that was easy for him to do. Why not just start over? Why not just crumple up the world and the universe into a ball of clay and start over? And to those that say that God would never send anyone to hell, that say that all are able to be saved, that his grace is not only sufficient to save all, but it is also efficient to save all, all those people need to do is just be willing to accept his free offer. To them, I submit to you the reality of the ark. Do you know that God gave Noah exact dimensions and directions in building the ark? In making provision for all the animals and humans that would be saved in it? And there was no room made for those that might possibly choose him. He didn't leave a light on. He didn't make a spare room. Just in case some at the last second would see the error of their ways and swim through the flood waters to the ark. 
verses 17 and 18 are given to us to let us know the manner in which the flood came. Again, God could have just offed everybody in one moment. But we're told there how God chose to kill all of his creation. You see, the flood didn't just happen. It took time. Forty days. There was time for those on the outside of the ark to repent if they were willing and able to, and they didn't. And you're asking yourself, are you telling me, David, that there was no one outside the ark that wasn't crying out to God, begging to be saved, scared to death of dying in this flood? No, I'm quite sure that there were multiplied thousands that were doing just that. And I'm also sure that there were many who were doing their very best works of sacrifice to appease their God while all this was going on. And I'm sure that there were many who were on their knees praying to their God to save them. But there was absolutely zero that were outside of that ark that saw themselves as a sinner in need of a Savior. Zero that understood that they had sinned against a holy God that had created them and that they were aliens to him. That they were not his favorite. That humanity was not his favorite. That they were dead men walking and failed to understand that he is his favorite. And saints, what do you suppose was going through the head of Noah and his family when all this was going on, those 40 days. Horror? Anger at God? Jesus, in speaking about the second coming and the final destruction of all that are not of heads, said this in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. He said, For as, the days, as, as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, if you think, if we think that this flood is radical, just wait. Wait until the day that Christ returns again when he brings his wrath with him and resurrects all those that died in the flood and all that have died up to this point and stands them before his father. And then he opens the books. Oh, most people know about the Lamb's Book of Life. Most people have heard of that book. And most people actually think that their names are found written in that book. And just like in the days of Noah, the people thought that they we're inside the ark. But do you understand there's only one Lamb's book of life? But as we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, there are multiplied other books. And those books are the books of judgment. And after opening these books, justly sending all whose names were not written in that Lamb's book of life to an eternity of wrath, God then will then destroy the heavens and the earth by fire and recreate them perfect, sinless, spotless once again. And the question we should be asking is why then? And why not at the flood? And we 
in our post-Christian thinking. We assume concerning God incorrectly. We assume that he is our definition of good, that he is our definition of love, that he is our definition of just. In our heads, we think a good God would never. And then in our heads, in our sin-filled, human, finite thinking, we place, our, we place God in a box. And that box always pertains to us or to someone that we love. But we are given the truth of God in the Bible. And this book, which is proof of his goodness, of his love, of his grace. Again, he condescended the infinite to the finite, the omniscient to the temporal, the creator to the created. He condescended in giving us this book. And we get Genesis 1-1 wrong. And for this reason, we have a bad understanding of the God who is love, who gave us this love letter that is this book. And in this book, we are told in the letter to the saints in Rome the reason why he didn't end everything at the flood. Romans 9. That answers the why of all these years from the flood until the final destruction. Verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? And this is the same warning that Jesus gave when he walked the earth as well. In the 8th chapter of the book of Luke, we're told of a time that Jesus taught the lesson of the ark. There we read, a great crowd had gathered, and people from town after town came to him, and he said to them in a parable. He said, a sower went out to sow his seed, and he, as he sowed, some fell along the path that was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns um, grew up and it was choked it and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold and he said these and as he said these things he called out he who has ears to hear let him hear and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant he said to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand now the parable is this the seed is the word of God, and the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, that are in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with much, much patience. Verses 4 through 15. And this is the same message that was given to those that Jesus was speaking to in Matthew chapter 7. There he began speaking to them by telling them to judge rightly, not unjustly. And then he goes on to explain what that means. 
and saying that you will know a person by their fruit. And then he finished up that lesson by saying this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he finished it with this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verses 15 through 23. Dear ones, there were those in the days of Noah who agreed in theory with him concerning God. They may have been willing to go along. They may have been willing to go and hear him preach week in and week out, year in and year out. But they didn't enter the ark. There was no room at the inn for them. They would never shout, glory to God, with the angels in heaven over the destruction of the sinful. The reason for the flood is the warning of the flood. And it all ties back into the theme of the Bible. It's all for the glory of God, to reveal the reality of the love of God. You see, there never should have been an ark. Noah was not righteous in and of himself, nor were his family members. God imputed his righteousness to them and they, so that they would be saved in the ark, the ark that he gave to them. And to the ones, to those on the outside, they were given mercy and they were given grace every single day that they lived in their sin-filled, sin-saturated, God-hating lives. And then God gave them justice. He gave them not only what they deserved, but he gave them what they desired. They desired to be free of him. They did not want to obey him. And he gave them the desires of their heart. And to those inside the ark, they could not think that God was unjust in his flood. They thought that he was merciful in saving them and imputing his righteousness to them because they knew who they were. They knew that they weren't righteous and that they deserved to be on the outside of the boat, not in it. You see, this is a sin that remains in us. That bad theology that we have been taught and we still hold. We are so able, so willing to stand and applaud at the destruction of those that are said to have brought down those World Trade Centers and murdered a thousand or a few thousand 
so-called innocent lives. And we, in our self-righteousness, applaud their destruction. But would do we applaud the eternal destruction of any and all that God chooses to not bestow his predetermined grace that cost him the death of his son on? Do we not see that we are deserving of this same wrath? That we are just as vile and hateful? And that his wrath is just as righteous as his love is? Noah and his family must have known this. And they must have gloried in the majesty and the wonder of the love of a God that would save a sinner such as them. They proclaimed along with David, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Psalm 68, verses 1 through 3. Noah rejoiced over the righteous judgment of God. Which is why the very first act that Noah did on the day that God told him to leave the ark was to build an altar to God and sacrifice to the God that had saved him. And saints, and you who are not, Christ is returning. And with him, he is bringing justice. And you may say, this is the same message that has been preached for over 2,000 years and Christ still has not returned. And this is the grace of God on humanity. Just as it was the grace of God to have Noah preach for over 100 years. We must gain a godly perspective of God and of humanity and of ourselves. Turn with me in this love letter to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is right before the T section in the New Testament. You know, Timothy, Titus, the T section. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the reality about humanity. Verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of man. And once again, we need to recognize that it is the grace of God, the love of God, that he would actually condescend to write this book and tell us the truth of who we are, of who all humans are. This is who Noah was. This is who Enoch was. Who all humans since Adam are. There's no hope for us. We should have all died in that flood. And we should all perish in the eternal fire of judgment. 
Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There, verse 4. There is the hope for all eternity. The amazing grace of God. The hope for all of the redeemed. There is no hope in and of ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Is this you? Does this amazing grace, does this resound within you, cause you to want to shout, Hallelujah! What a Savior! Do you understand that you should have been drowned in that flood? That you should be burned in that fire? And yet you will not because you have been redeemed. And if this is you, then listen to the truth, the rest of the truth of who you are because of the grace of God found in Christ. Verse 6, he raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a re- as a result of works, that, so work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepare, prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Noah had the righteousness of God imputed to him, which caused him to be able to hear the word of God and then obey the commands given to him. And this was the faith with which he demonstrated that he was righteous, which proved that he was righteous. Not his righteousness, but it was his faith that demonstrated through the obedience of his life that that was the thing that proved that he had the righteousness of God imputed to him. He had been given eyes to see, ears to hear the truth of God. And saints, if you have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, if you are the righteousness of Christ, just as Noah was, then verse 10 of Ephesians 7 tells us that you will hear the word of God and obey and that your obedience demonstrates, demonstrated by your actions, it is that which will prove that you are the righteousness of God that has been imputed to a sinner, that has been saved by grace. It's not works. But you will live. You will work. You will love for the glory of God, just as Noah did. And saints, as you sit there and you think about all the rest of those people that call themselves Christian, understand this. You are not going to be held responsible for anybody else but you. And God does not grade on a curve. If you hear the word of God, if you know that you are a sinner, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that you have been made alive in Christ, you are responsible for you. 
but heed the warning of that one, that one that you claim as your Savior. And do not presume on his goodness or his grace that he has to accept whatever you decide to give him. If you are not enthralled by his mercy in saving you from what you deserve, be warned. Because there were eight on that ark. And that was a gracious mercy. That there were any at all. And those eight, they saw his mercy. They saw his grace and his favor in his eyes. And their lives reflected it because they obeyed. And dear ones, if you're hearing this message, in the back, the hair on the back of your neck is bristling, or if you think that God was unjust in the killing of the little old ladies and those children, if the commands by God to obey your master causes you to get mad, be warned. Because Jesus didn't mince his words or promise half-heartedly that he would save all that came to him. But be sure that it is his voice that you are hearing. And if you hear his voice, then obey. Live like there is a flood on the way. And that you only have one hope. And that is to obey the one who has saved you. Because there is worse than a flood coming. And this is truth. This is reality. And the ark was not built as a testimony to man or even for man. It was a built as a testimony of the grace of God in saving man from himself. The end is near. And God has promised to destroy all life. And he has imputed his righteousness to his children. And he has given them, his children, the warning of the end. And then given them commands. And they're pretty simple commands, really. If you are the righteousness of God, you will love the Lord God. And you will love others as yourself. And you love, you demonstrate that love of God through obedience. You discipline yourself for godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. You don't forsake the gathering of the brethren, Hebrews 10, 24 through 26. You don't love money, but you give joyfully, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. And you live sacrificially, Romans 12, 1 and, 12, 1 and 2. And in all of this, you work out your, your salvation and fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And all of your working, all of your striving, all of your loving is because of the, the imputed righteousness of God. And all of this will stand as a testimony of the reality of the God that is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Just as Noah's life did. And it's all for the glory of God. Sola Deo Gloria. Let's pray.